Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. Today's guest is Joshua Landis, the Sandra Mackey Chair and Professor at the University of Oklahoma's College of International Studies and the Director of the Center for Middle East Studies. Professor Landis writes and manages SyriaComment.com, the foremost blog on Syrian politics, and he publishes frequently in policy journals such as Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs. He's also appeared on The Charlie Rose Show, Frontline, and is a regular contributor to NPR and the BBC. Other than being one of the best resources in the U.S. on Syria, he's an amazing teacher and friend. Josh was a former professor of mine, and I can't say there's been many people who've had such a big impact on my life and education. Josh's timing is pretty impeccable given the investment implications of the recent announcement the Trump administration is walking away from the Iran nuclear accord. My hope is that you gain some insight into energy markets, but I also hope that this interview is really educational for you to learn more about the Middle East, what's going on there, the strategic geopolitical narrative. And there's really no better person to tell you about the Middle East than Dr. Landis, in my opinion. Of course, I'm biased. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Thank you so very much for joining the IWTB podcast to talk about the Middle East and the most recent announcement with respect to Iranian sanctions and the Trump administration's decision to abandon the accord. So thank you very much for joining the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure, Nate. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on your podcast. So I, I guess the first question I have to ask, though, is did you ever have Baker Mayfield in any of your classes? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> but good question. He wasn't taking Middle East, Middle East politics class. <laughs> Could you tell us just a little bit about what the agreement entailed back in 2015 under President Obama and how that relates to oil production, oil supply out of Iran? Sure. You know, Iran, before sanctions and under the Shah, was producing five, six million barrels of oil a day. Under the worst part of the sanctions, Iran's oil production had fallen to two million barrels a day, and it was exporting very little. So it had really fallen off as a world supplier of oil. Since the Iran deal, Iran has been able to double uh, the size of its production from two to four million barrels a day, and about two million barrels of those is being exported. So it's become an, a sizable exporter of, of oil. About 4% of global output is coming from Iran. So if that disappears, and we expect analysts are saying that anywhere between 200,000 barrels a day to a million barrels a day will fall off because of renewed sanctions from Washington. Really, we're not sure how that's going to work out. It depends on how powerful the American banking system is and whether the Treasury Department really goes after every European company that continues to do business with Iran. If they do, they can really shut Iran down. China, others, may still be able to, um, to get in there because China has set up a, a separate bank, uh, the Kunlun Bank, that deals specifically and only with Iran financing. So it's untouchable unless America wants to sanction, you know, the Chinese government in some way in order to punish it for doing this. So we'll have to see how these things work out. But of course, we know from shale and other things that there, there are a lot of other supply that may be waiting to come on if prices go up significantly. 
What did the United States and the European Union hope to achieve by lifting sanctions back in 2015? Well, President Obama did not want to go to war with Iran. And Iran was ramping up its uh, refinement of uranium in order to, the U.S. believed, weaponize missiles and be able to send, you know, to create an atom bomb. And Israel was increasingly saying, we've got to bomb all of Iran's nuclear plants in order to stop this movement towards a bomb. The problem is that when Obama came up with this accord, which allowed for international inspectors into Iran, very, very heavy inspection regime, but also made sure that Iran would not be able to refine beyond 20% and even keep it down to like 2% refinement for uranium. And this has been working, but it's for a 15-year period. After that, there are some restrictions, but Iran can theoretically begin to move back up again. So also, there was no restriction on Iran's missile capability. And Iran has been testing new missiles and making them longer range and so forth. This, is, this has created a lot of anxiety for Israel. Also, Saudi Arabia and Israel fundamentally did not want sanctions lifted. They preferred to have sanctions on Iran rather than Iran moving up towards the bomb. Why? Because sanctions have kept Iran out of the international marketplace, out of the international banking system, and kept it from normalizing business relations with other countries. And this has kept Iran poor. The threat that the Iran deal presented to Israel and Saudi Arabia is that Iran was going to get richer and integrate into the world. Therefore, in the future, it'll be much harder to get international companies to stop dealing with Iran. Israel and Saudi Arabia prefer a poor Iran. Why? Because then Iran won't be able to spend so much on its military and flex its muscles around the Middle East and challenge Israel and Saudi Arabia for leadership in the Persian Gulf, in Syria, Lebanon, other places. That's the fundamental gripe with the Obama deal. Uh, President Obama did not want to have to bomb Iran and go to war against another Middle Eastern country. So he thought the deal was good. He didn't particularly like Saudi Arabia so much. He didn't like Israel that much. He was trying to balance Shiites against Sunnis, Saudi Arabia against Iran. He, he didn't want to get into a fight with Iran on the side of Israel and Saudi Arabia. That's something that Trump, I think, relishes. He's happy to do that. A lot of his biggest funders, campaign funders, have been pro-Israeli. People like Edelman, the, the big casino owner, who's given him tens of millions of dollars for his campaign. And there are many others. So he's responding to some very clear domestic signals, as well as his allies in Saudi Arabia and so forth. So that that's what I think the United States is trying to do is create a poor Iran, an Iran that's not engaged in the international business system. I think President Trump believes that he can hem Iran in. Israel believes the same thing, that have much better technology than Iran. They can bomb Iran and keep it from developing nuclear weapons. They just want to make sure that it's poor and it's not integrated into the system. In your opinion, was Iran delivering on their end of the bargain? Yes. No, Iran was clearly delivering on its end of the bargain. And it was um, 
flexing its muscles at the same time. And we see that in Yemen. We see that in Syria. Iran has won the battle in Syria by and large because Assad has reasserted himself and has reconquered about 65% of the Syrian landmass. The United States holds about 30% of Syria, Turkey, maybe 10%. So um, Iran is flexing its muscles, and that gets makes Israel and Saudi Arabia anxious. Iran would like to push the United States out of the Persian Gulf. Iran sees itself as the major power in this region. It does not want the United States to be this superpower in the region, controlling what goes on. And so there is a, you know, there's a struggle for power there, and, and that affects both Israel, because Israel is threatened by Iran, and that affects Saudi Arabia, because Saudi you know, wants to be the main power in the, what it calls the Arabian Gulf. Yeah. And then, so that balance of power there is, is, is a delicate one. Yeah. And, we, and when you talk about the interests of the Iranians, you, are, are you talking about hardliners, moderates? Are you talking about everyone, all of the above? Or is it? That's a good question. I mean, Iran is divided. And President Obama clearly believed that he could, he could favor the moderates by making a deal. And he believed that this would, in the end, it would create a more moderate Iran and that the hardliners would be pinned down and wouldn't have as many excuses to build up militarily and and to say, you know, America's Satan and so forth. But I, I think all Iranians are nationalistic. It depends on how nationalistic they are. Most Iranians believe that Saudi Arabia is, a, is very bigoted against Shiites, which of course it is, and that it's not an enlightened power. They don't want it calling the shots in the region. You know, that creates a, a natural competition. What do you think the the Obama nuclear accord did for hardliners versus the moderates in Iran? Well, the idea was that it was going to give the moderates a way to gain, gain power because the argument is, is that if Iranians get richer, if the middle class gets bigger, the middle class is going to want more representation. The middle class is fed up with the mullahs running everything in a religious establishment, breathing down their neck making them wear the chadar, making them not drink alcohol, not trade with the West, not go to the West for university, not allow Westerners to come in easily and tourists around Iran. Just the whole, you know, the whole anxiety about the West is evil and so forth. A lot of middle class Iranians don't like that approach. They don't believe it. They like the West. They like listening to Western music, wearing Western clothes and being part of the West. So, the idea was if you can lift sanctions and get rid of this designation as Iran being the number one enemy of America and, uh, and trying to subvert the regime, bring down the Iranian regime, that ultimately this would allay the conflict. It would undermine the position of the hardliners who are spending lots of Iranian money on, for example, in Syria and Yemen and so forth, that they, you know, the whole tenor Iran changed, not overnight, of course, that doesn't happen in two or three years, but it could happen over 10 or 20 years. And this would ultimately lead to the weakening of the mullahs and create a much more robust and vigorous liberal middle class that would seek to expand civil society and democracy and freedoms. So that's that's the idea. I think it's a good idea. I think that impoverishing Iranians will delay democracy. I do think that there is a connection between wealth 
and democracy. And that by, by making people poor, you're just putting off the horizon. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.